0: Marlowe and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. In this Good Friday edition of the show, I report all the latest news on Elon Musk's efforts to buy Twitter and I give you my take on just how serious he is. Then I mentioned a pretty long list of good news about Republicans fighting back against the left throughout the country. And more horrific poll numbers have came in for Big Joey the Biden and Kamala Harris, both personally and their agenda. All good news, the opening of the show. Then we get into Dr. Oz's slobbering defense of Juicy Smollier. I actually think the two TV stars have a lot in common. Two guests today, first, Dr. Tom Williams on Good Friday, Easter, christian genocide and the state of the catholic church today dr tom's theologian he knows a thing or two about the faith and it's always good to get his assessment from rome itself then the babylon b comic adam yenzer is with me uh, we talk about the state of comedy cancel culture elon musk and their friendship uh and or the bees' friendship with musk and the ongoing censorship of the babylon b comedy website by the masters of the universe at twitter all that to come but first a word from our sponsors <laughs> start there with Twitter and I know we're about again this is I think two shows in a row I've hosted where I'm going back almost 24 hours which is something I don't like doing Um, but I do think you probably want my take on what's going on with Elon Musk and any details that uh, I've unearthed and thought through Um, but Elon Musk put in a offer to buy Twitter yesterday morning at a around a 43 billion dollar um offer, a $43 billion of valuation, which would have amounted to a hostile takeover, is the expression, and it would have taken the company private. And so the question is, to begin with, then, is he serious? Is he actually, the uh, the? is this offer something that is credible? He spoke about it a little bit, and let's hear, we have a little audio of this. Let me play some of this, and I'll kind of break down. Uh, what I think is the most essential components. Let's play cut four. Go ahead, Haley.
1: And a good sign as to whether there is free speech is, uh, is, is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like. And if that is the case, then we have free speech. And it's, it's damn annoying when someone you don't like says something you don't like. That is a sign of a healthy, functioning uh, free speech situation. Yeah, let's play Cup 5. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, so uh, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they're able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Um, and, you know, so one of the things that I believe Twitter should do is open source the algorithm um, and make any changes. Uh, to people's tweets, you know, if they're emphasized or de-emphasized, uh, that action should be, should be made apparent, so you can, anyone can see that, that action has been taken. So there's there's no sort of behind the scenes uh, manipulation, either algorithmically or manually. Um, yeah. but, <clears throat>
0: Yeah, and these are all good things to say, and they're all things I agree with. Of course, the it's very easy to defend free speech you like and or defend speech you like, but yet the free speech needs to be defended on the margins. It needs to be defended if you believe in free speech when you don't agree with the content, you don't like the people saying it. It's well summed up, um, and I think that that's a, a good thing. He seems to understand that component of it that said the bid that came in was not a 100% a serious bid. Are you shocked by that fact? Uh, Let's kind of break down what we know about it. The first thing is that the offer was for $54.20 per share, and people immediately picked up on the fact that the 420 element, elements of 5420 is clearly a pot reference. So Elon, even though he's free speech warrior, he does add the pot joke into the offer Um, he's done this in the past where he makes pot references uh, and with some of his bids to buy other stuff or where he sets the shares for the things he wants to buy so clearly that's a sign that he is joking at least to some degree that he could sort of uh, he picked this arbitrary number and it's got a pot joke in it okay so that's not a great sign okay but here is a good sign so he's retained Morgan Stanley to advise him in the process the investment bank Morgan Stanley is very familiar and quite capable of helping advise on a hostile takeover so that suggests that maybe he is somewhat serious Um, and another thing that's a slightly positive sign is the 5420 number is slightly over the current uh, share price which is uh, 45.08 if you're listening to the show live right now so the 54.20 is a premium which is typically what would be done if someone's trying to do a hostile takeover they'll offer more than the current sale price however that number is significantly lower than twitter has traded at just last year so if you're a twitter shareholder and you're looking over the last year you saw stocks over 70 uh, over 70 dollars um in uh, around uh, the, about a year ago today and they really hung around seventy dollars through most of last fall um and they were around 65 dollars last winter and they really kind of uh the, the fell off quite a bit since then so if you' really believe in Twitter you probably believe it's worth at least seventy dollars a share and must offer came in way lower than that so Wall Street does not think Musk is serious. And the evidence of this is that if they did see Musk's offer as credible, you would assume that the share price would go up towards Musk's offer at 5420. Um and the reason why it would go up is because it would be a really quick way to make a buck. Because if Musk is gonna buy it for fifty four twenty and you believed him and is trading now at forty five oh eight, of course you're gonna buy a ton of shares and then you're gonna cash out in a couple of weeks or whatever it would be, and you're gonna make nine bucks a share, boom. So you're making uh, 20% on your money right there, maybe 30%, depending on how it all plays out. So that did not happen. In fact, the Twitter price went down. So Wall Street thinks Musk is trolling. So there's a a few data points there. It's not to be totally uh, dismissed, but the 420 and the low bid and also the fact that he'd come out and say, this is my final offer, which is not typically how it's done. It was his first offer. And he comes and flat out says, this is it. And if you guys don't go for it, I'll be looking into uh, plan B. All suggests he's doing what he does best, which is gobble up news headlines. So we, uh, John Carney and I work on the Breitbart Business Digest, which you can subscribe to on the front page of Breitbart.com every day. And the uh, headline for yesterday's edition was Hyper Hype, Musk Offers to buy to Buy Twitter. Earns another news cycle. So what he does, he he what he wants to do is get attention. He got attention. Um, I'm I, I will say this: someone who's not a must fan and who understands that his business model is tied to government contracts with America and the Chinese Communists. I, I will say what he's saying about free speech is productive, uh, and I'm glad he's saying that stuff. And it, it is, um, it, he is someone who annoys me. And he is someone who I disagree with quite a bit and I think is rolling a lot of people that I otherwise respect. Um, But I do think that that talk is good and I like it. And the Morgan Stanley thing makes me think that maybe he really does want to do this. Uh, But I was asking John if he actually thinks it's possible, is Musk even liquid enough? uh, Does he have the ability to actually just flat out buy Twitter? And uh, Carney says for sure he can. And between the fact that his Tesla valuation alone would give him nearly unlimited buying power. He also should pretty easily be able to raise whatever money he does want to put up himself, he says, quite easily. So it's a um, it's a compelling thing because Twitter is a cesspool, it's a horrible place. Um, and I think if this discussion took place a couple years ago, I, I think I'd be cheering it on a little more. I just think that we've seen so many stunts from Musk over the years and Twitter is so broken right now uh, it I just feels very far fetched that it's going to get fixed because it's mostly just a home for hostile, angry, woke millennials. That's what happens on Twitter. So it goes on. So again, we'll, we'll keep you posted. And But again, there, there's more indications this is a troll and an attention getting maneuver than there is that this is legit. Um, But that said, the people who are suggesting that maybe Musk is the last hope for Twitter, uh, that might be true. It it, it really is still, even as for me, it's still a low batting average, low percentage chance he's really going to buy it. He's actually going to save it. Uh, It's still a chance. And that's not the case really coming from any other direction. Um, The biggest development on this front later in the evening is um, the. Uh, is is a Saudi Arabian prince um, has said that he's not interested, or there's multiple Saudi Arabian princes, I think. Um, but it, it Prince al bin Talal, who is one of the biggest players financially in the world, uh, has a huge shareholder, and he says flat out, this is not going to happen. But that's what I said about the price. The price is just kind of a lowball to do this. If you really want to force Twitter's hand, where they have to, their board has to present the idea to their shareholders and really consider it as a fiduciary. Their responsibility to their shareholders to make the money. Uh, you got to go higher than this, and you can't do the, the 420 trolling thing. That's why it suggests it's probably not 100 percent serious. So if you went 6420, I think maybe we'd have maybe it would happen, and Musk can do it easy. I mean, what's even the difference for him? Um, what would be the difference there? Five, five billion, something like that. He'd come up with it. Eight billion, he's got it. If he if he really wants to do it, if he cares about free speech that much, maybe it's worth another eight billion dollars for him. And I think he'd make back a lot of it right away. So, it'd be interesting to see uh, how this goes from there. But that's kind of where where we're at. But uh, I, I admit. It would not be a bad thing if he was not a troll. So it's kind of a win-win for me. Either I'm going to look good for calling it right on Musk or we're going to have a slightly more free internet. So both of those are are good results in my opinion. So I'm I'm sitting pretty. Marlo's sitting pretty. Sweet spot for me. I, forget, I forgot to mention, by the way, it is Hawaiian shirt Friday. So if you do have a Hawaiian shirt on and jeans and you can somehow inform that to uh, producers Haley and Greg, then you will get in first on the call boards. Uh, other financial news, jobless claims again, yesterday were below two hundred thousand. and um, the which means our labor market super tight, which again gives a lot of power to the worker over the employer. Combine that with retail sales that were also quite strong and the import price index, which means the, uh, the which is, a reflection of how expensive things are that we bring in from overseas. Uh, that was not just high, but it was above expectations. This all indicates that inflation is runaway right now. It's not gonna slow down. There's nothing that's suggesting inflation is gonna slow down. Um the Fed is gonna have to keep jacking up rates, and th- but again, that takes time. They don't do it all at once, they'll do it over the course of a year at least. And so there's nothing to suggest that the biden inflation is coming down. So it's a big deal because Big Joey has started to understand that this is a political liability as well. He spoke about it a little bit yesterday. Let's play some sounds. Play cut two,
2: please. So, folks, don't tell me we this trickle-down idea is the only way to grow an economy. We're actually lowering the deficit, not increasing it. And after a long, tough stretch, Americans are back to work. Our economy has gone from being on the mend to being on the move. Now, I know that we're still facing challenges of high prices, inflation. I grew up in a family where, when the price of gasoline went up at the pump, it was a conversation at the kitchen table with my dad. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has driven up gas prices and food prices all over the world. Ukraine and Russia, the one and two largest wheat producers in the world, were number three. They're shut down. We saw that in yesterday's inflation data. What people don't know is that 70% of the increase in inflation was a consequence of Putin's price hike because of the impact on oil prices. 70%. We need we need to address these high prices and urgently for working folks out there.
0: As we noted that the inflation, which is now at 8.5%, it was at 7.9% when Putin invaded Ukraine. So not to suggest Putin invasion of Ukraine has nothing to do with what's going on, but we're supposed to be prepared for this stuff. And a lot of people might suggest that Putin would have invaded Ukraine if big Joey the Biden hadn't been the president because he's so weak on all sides. So he certainly didn't suggest to Putin that there would be ample consequences for him. Um, Putin felt like he'd get away with it. And Putin kind of did, aside from the fact that he was incompetent to win the war. So, again, good on the Ukrainians in that front. But him suggesting that the deficit is going down, that's, that's striking to me. Um, and what, what was his t- trickle-down talk? saying that, that, that you got to tell me trickle down is the only way to grow an economy. You can grow an economy just by selling ice cream cones. So who talks about trickle down? I always think of this because he's thinking of people like me. He's thinking of people who have right-wing talk shows, um, you know, the OG influencers in conservative media. And it's a, there are my colleagues are about trickle down right now. Will Cow doing a big monologue on trickle down later. It's just, he's living in a another century not even decades, living another century. I guess theoretically I like trickle down economics, but it's not a a centerpiece of what we're doing at Breitbart. So um, him blaming Putin is so pathetic. And uh, the good news is that people do not seem to be buying it. And this is pretty great news. Um, I think people understand the nature of the inflation a lot of it has to do with the endless pumping of trillions of dollars into the economy that's where it started and the failure to get the rates up where they need to be to slow down the inflation but the but the trillions of stimulus 1.9 trillion dollars joined with the 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill it was just not good timing for that stuff And that's exactly how Joey the Biden handled the first year of his administration is just pumping more money into an economy that was already on the verge of overheating. So that that is a thing that I don't think the public is is buying and the polling is suggesting that's the case. 33 percent approval in the latest Quinnipiac University poll. 26% 26% independents approve of what Big Joe is doing. 39% back as handling of Ukraine, which is also excellent because it's good news. Because this is one where even though he kept us out of war, which is to his credit thus far, uh, it is, I think a lot of people understand that him not making sure the war was averted has led to some of the inflation. And there's not to mention the massive level of insecurity this all uh, brings about for the whole planet. The world's a more expensive and less safe place at the moment. So I think some people are getting woke on this. He's got record low approvals with Hispanics also in the Quinnipiac poll, 26%. That is a tectonic shift in the landscape. Do you think it's because he doesn't say Latinx enough? Do you think if he said latinx more often? Vice President Kami Harris, her approval rating fell to 35% in California, the state that unfurled her upon the rest of us. Joe Biden's strong approval rating is only 16%, only 16% strongly approved. I mean, those are gnarly bad numbers, really bad. One thing that I think is also eating at people is the schizophrenia when it comes to his COVID and his immigration policies. Uh, Masks are staying on, so we'll be wearing the face diapers on flights for at least the next couple weeks. And the White House COVID response coordinator was grilled, uh, Dr. Ashish Jha, I think is how his name is pronounced because he still has kids in masks, particularly on planes, but we are ending the title 42 border protections in the middle of an immigration search, which will get Americans killed. Not only will some illegal aliens come and commit violent crime, but they will bring fentanyl and drugs that will Americans will overdose on and make America a weaker place, place where more American families will suffer. And why is this? Because the skeleton in the White House and all of the goofballs who surround him, who are supposed to be in charge of his COVID policy, don't see it as problematic to uh, have restrictions on American children, but not on cartel backed illegal aliens flooding our border from the south. And you don't have to take my word for it, Congressman Henry Cuellar, who's a Democrat in Texas, who's one of the sane Democrats on this issue, has said that Biden's giving mixed messages on COVID and the border. And he says it's actually becoming marketing for the cartels. Pretty wild. He said the cartels are going to be enriched by the end of Title 42. <laughs> um, And he thinks the cartels are going to make billions of dollars due to this due to this removal of title 42. How can you still have a public health issue order extended for 90 days and then say there's no health issue and get rid of title 42 question mark he says all it does it becomes a marketing process for the cartels to get more people into the united states no kidding So Republicans are fighting back across the country, and one of the places where you see some of the most fight back is in Texas, where Governor Abbott has been busing illegal aliens throughout the country, particularly to D.C. I think he's got a third bus now where he's busing them in. It's mostly symbolic. Obviously, we've got um, maybe a million people a year coming in at this point, and I think that number will go up. Again, it's hard to know because for every person you catch, there's probably one to two who we don't catch. So we don't really know if they came in or not. But Governor Abbott is busing people all around. And he has enhanced inspections that he thinks is effectively pushing back on some of the Mexican border states who are not part of the solution, who are part of the problem, perhaps bought off by the cartels. So this is a positive development because he's trying to take matters into his own hands. Some of you might say he was slow in the uptake, uh, but again, he's, he's doing a lot now. He's attacking from multiple sides. With enhanced inspections and he's doing the busing stunt, I think both of those are good uh, ideas because they do raise awareness and they get a lot of attention on an issue that's a popular issue. Ron DeSantis also saying flat out to illegal aliens. Do not come to Florida. Life will not be easy for you. It's a good message to send because it does discourage the cartels because the cartels are the ones who are sending the people here and they get money sent back to them. If the cartels get the impression that they are uh, uh, the the people are not going to be allowed to stay then they're not going to get their money. And so the effort they're putting forward is in vain. It's worthless. So, speaking of Florida and more fight back content, they've enacted protections for unborn babies at 15 weeks. This is a pretty good trend. Even better news out of Kentucky, where the legislature overrode the Democrat governor's veto to pass a 15-week abortion ban. As the technology gets better, then it becomes more and more clear that abortion is a is is uh, scientifically speaking, is murder. And Governor Andy Beshear, Democrat, who somehow was chosen to lead the state of Kentucky, got dunked on by the Republican-led legislature. And Ron DeSantis had a big celebratory ceremony. It's just very hard to to make the case that 15 weeks is not ample time, even if you're even if you're pro-abortion. It's very hard to make the case that 15 weeks is not ample time to make your decisions. Um, the development of the fetus at that point is profound. And very easy to track with modern technology to see that that is a human life inside of the womb. So uh, popular stuff happening in red states. And I think overall, the more states do this, it also overwhelms the left. and makes it more difficult for them to protest, fight back, complain, and thus execute more unborn. So that's a happy Good Friday message for you. Fighting for the unborn. We're on the march here on the right in this regard. So um, all of that is somewhat positive news that people seem to be getting the picture about Biden. Seem to get the picture about the border coronavirus. There's a surreal f- uh, video going around about of Big Joey where he spoke at the University of Pennsylvania and said he was a full professor there for four years, which is not true. And then it looks like he goes to shake hands with the air. Let's put this up at Brightport.com. It's pretty unbelievable. He seems to turn to his right after his speech, put out his hand to shake someone's hand, and then he just pulls it back. There are some deep concerns about his mental function. And if you share those concerns, I certainly am not, not, not convinced that all of his marbles are there. A couple other headlines I want to bring to your attention. I do recommend a story John Hayward has for us at Breitbart News. Showing that rare earth exports show that the green economy may be communist China's saving grace. Communist China has a lot of problems right now. They've got a bad uh, birth rate, and they're really struggling with coronavirus. They've got their draconian lockdowns now. Um, they are their birth rate is a major issue though, because you can't their their economic power comes from the amount of people they have. Video of Shanghai police berating, abusing desperate citizens under lockdown is uh, not good for them. There is a a concentration camp survivor making the rounds detailing torture and indoctrination in China. Uh, Even the establishment media, I haven't seen so many negative headlines on China as we've seen recently. So China is not in they're not having their strongest moment, as I think the Western world becomes more uh, enlightened. But one of their saving graces is they have a dominance on rare earths. Rare earths is key to the technology of the future. And they have done this largely not just because of that. They control a lot of the supply through China. They also are colonizing Africa, where they get a lot of that as well. Um, and they're moving quickly to consolidate the control of rare earth minerals. And um, this is something that is potentially a place where they're going to have a monopoly when some of the technology of the future rely on them to function. So reading this breakdown from John Hayward to Breitbart is highly recommended. Um, but the China state run Global Times highlighted that they're soaring rare earth exports is actually a bright spot for them. And they did this. They put this out there because China is struggling. So China's economy is not in great shape. And that's why the Global Times wanted to, to big up themselves. But it also is a signal to the rest of the world that China is seeing a growth in this is at the expense. This is a scarce resource, or these rare earth minerals are scarce resources. And China's controlling them, and they're vying for more. I have to say, we've been warning about this at Breitbart, dating all the way back to when Andrew was here, when Andrew was with us. Because Andrew had a close friend who's one of the top rare earth guys, actually uh, helped Trump on his rare earth policies. Um, And said, hey, we got a problem here. China's dominating this and they're really competing for more. Um, And American defense contractors are buying from China. And just like so much, we are dependent on buying from China, at least for the short term future. All right, last one, can't resist it, so good. It's out there, Dr. Oz defending Juicy it's the I got a few emails that people are unclear about my position on Dr. Oz, the man who lives mostly in New Jersey, has a house in Florida, works in New York, running for Senate in Pennsylvania. Even though he's been pro-red flag laws and gun control, he believes that children can be born trans, which is not even what the trans community says. Um, has been pro-abortion, pro embassy for legal aliens, has Turkish citizenship and will only re- uh, relinquish it if he wins, served in the Turkish military, all that stuff. I have zero idea why he would be a um, Republican and much less a Republican senator. I have no idea. I think it's a big joke. I think uh, Oz candidacy is a big joke. So in case I was not clear about this earlier in the week, I think I was. But maybe I got too jokey too quick, but I was, uh, I did get a few emails, what do you guys think of us? It's a colossal joke. I can't think of one conservative position he holds, unless you just take um, the word of some of the people who are supporting him that he's now all of a sudden a conservative. Maybe he is, and maybe he turns out to be, maybe he wins, turns out to be a really reliable vote. I just don't know why of all the people, who live in Pennsylvania or could carpetbag in Pennsylvania. I don't know why he's the guy, Uh, but he did defend Juicy Smollier, one of the most clear hoaxes in all of the fake news hall of shame that I wrote about in Breaking the News, which I do recommend to all of you. But uh, after the Juicy Smollier hoax went underway, uh, Dr. Oz says that he adored and loves his good friend, Jussie Smollett. So got rolled again. Jussie Smollett, who has been on the show, who we adore, was recently injured. It's been called a hate crime, he said. Jussie, if you're watching this, the entire audience, all of us are saying we love you very much and we wish you the best. It's a fool. Dr. Oz is a fool. We're a liar. One the other. So Pennsylvania, you can do better. <laughs> Bart's man in Rome is Dr. Tom Williams, who is a theologian and a great journalist in his own right. And I always check in with him on all matters faith and religion. And it is Good Friday as we're recording this. And so we have a lot to talk about, both in terms of the micro and the macro. Let's hear it. Dr. Tom, happy Good Friday to you. Do you say happy Good Friday? You don't say that. What do you say to greet someone on Good Friday? No,
3: no you you actually can. Uh, Fulton Sheen famously argued. Bishop Fulton Sheen years ago uh, had a whole discourse about the Friday men call good and about how it was Good Friday because salvation, redemption is accomplished, even though it's the day of of atrocity, it's the day of deicide, um, it is the day of salvation at the same time. So that's so I I, I suppose you can say happy, maybe not. Uh, Blessed,
0: blessed is probably blessed. There you go. That's it. I've asked you this before, and I think you said the same thing. He said blessed is good. So uh, talk to me about let's just go. Let's go biblical here. Let's go back and uh, not look in the context of the 2022 lens, which we will do. But what is a appropriate way? To commemorate Good Friday, what is because it's it's the, the the it is should be the day of deepest reflection perhaps of the entire year um, if you are a Christian. So what what is an appropriate way to be today?
3: Well, there are a number of things we can draw. A, a historical a historical approach is a good one because it has been commemorated from uh, from the very very first century of Christianity as a day of a special. Remembrance of what happened, especially the three hours from 12 to 3 that we believe is about the time when Jesus hung on the cross. We have the commemoration of what they call the seven last words of Jesus, uh, his consoling, his, uh, Father forgive them, they know not what they do, his, today you will be with me in paradise to the, to the repentant thief, to behold your mother, to John at the foot of the cross, these different things that he says and to think about those. Um, you commemorate the passion with the veneration of the cross, the appreciation for the mystery of the cross and what that symbol means for Christians. Um, it's one of the only two days left in the entire liturgical year for Roman Catholics that fasting is required. Uh, we, we Catholics obliged to abstain on Fridays and light, abstain from meat, uh, and obliged to fast only two days now. It used to be much more, which are Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, which basically means two small meals and one slightly larger meal. Now, no eating between meals. It's not exactly harsh penance. Um, but there are all sorts of these things. And then there's something that is done, it commemorates here every year in Rome, and many parishes do it as well, which is the Stations of the Cross or the Via Crucis, which commemorates points along the way when Jesus uh, is first laden with his cross, carries it, falls, um, meets different persons on the way, and finally is crucified and dies. On Golgotha. Um, these are all, I think, really good ways to just remember. I mean, I have now bringing it up to the 2022, I, I know a lot of people who go back and watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ on, on, on Good Friday, just to remember what this means and what's going on. Um, I, I think really the key, Alex, is just to remember it's a special day, it's a sacred day, so even amidst yep. our work and our usual activities, to set something aside.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. And this is one thing that I learned about, really, the the process for Lent, is that giving up a sacrifice is, is not even that you're going to be perfect or that your sacrifice is going to it's going to pale in comparison to Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But I think this is the whole point, is just to show you how small and how weak we can be and how we do need to be humbled uh, before God.
3: I, I think you're absolutely right, and rem- I mean and it just shows. I mean, that, and and, and the, the funny thing is that God still appreciates it, as small as those sacrifices are, and as yeah. you know, little in comparison. It's still something that He takes as an act of love with gratitude, and I think it also, as you say, it shows the way our cooperation is such a small part in our salvation, because He won it, He redeemed us, and yet He requires us to at least say yes to that. You know, there there has to be an act of willingness on our part an act of acceptance of that gift, uh, which is our cooperation with it.
0: Right. So is uh, now help me understand how we got from uh, Jesus dies for our sins. And so we hide the eggs and we take photos with the bunny and we chocolate. Like, how do we get to that? Do Do you have any idea?
3: Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know the origin of each of those, uh, th- the modern kind of commercial aspects. I do know it's, it's something that we've seen with every holiday, which, as you know, originates with the word holy day. Holidays are holy right. days. That's where, the, that's where the word comes from. And now they are much more, even for many Christians, they are more holidays than they are holy days, in the sense that we've adopted, you know, we whitewash we don't like the religious and the Christian uh, aspect of it, and so we look for ways that they can be celebrated in a pluralistic society, uh, with, the, with the scare quotes there, you know, of, of, of the way that you know, we have to look at things through a secular lens. We, we refuse to accept the fact that, no, this is actually a Christian holiday, this is actually a Christian feast, the reason we have Christmas, the reason we have Easter, these are things that actually mark uh, something that is very, very important spiritually for Christians.
0: Uh, I, I think that is worthwhile. And it is ultimately the weekend ends in a celebration. What do you think the same question to you about Good Friday, but now let's let's turn to Easter. It's a what is you think is a good way to celebrate Easter? Is it just simply gathering with family, go to church? Or is there something more that could be a more meaningful way to celebrate?
3: Well, I think going to church is definitely the, 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 the low bar, but it is a bar. I mean, I, I, I'd love to see everybody get over it. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, yeah. it is a step in the right direction by honoring the one whose feast it is. And I, and I think that Christians need to find a way to truly rejoice. And I think that what you mentioned before about little sacrifice offered up during Lent, you know, when we do that, it makes it easier to rejoice strangely, on Easter, when we do nothing during Lent, when there's no preparation, that it's very hard to celebrate anything because there's been no work to actually get your soul prepared for that. Um, and I, I think, you know, our, again, it's our need for a Savior and our understanding of our profound need for God that allows us to rejoice and be grateful. If we don't feel, if we feel like we're our own saviors and we've got it all under control and we really don't need God, there's nothing to celebrate.
0: Uh, this is a very meaningful thing. And I think that in the context of 2022 now, the uh, for me, it is still very challenging uh, to go through some of the basic rituals. You say it's a low bar. Uh, but again, it, it is tough when we watched uh, so many mandates in place. It is still in one of the churches. I go to a couple because uh, I'm kind of equidistant from a, a couple churches. But uh, the, one of the ones I go to. Uh, they're very into the mask stuff and the social distancing stuff, and it's incredibly distracting. And the bizarre, uh, the mass with the choir, there there maybe one of them doesn't have a mask on, the others have masks on, and is Dr. Tom? Do you think? How do you evaluate the church's performance during the COVID nineteen pandemic, and whether or not you think it's helped or hurt their cause of trying to get more people into the pews?
3: Well, unfortunately, I, I am personally convinced that it has been atrocious, and it has done nothing to help and everything to hurt. I think everything from the kind of online Mass going, so, oh, it doesn't matter if we go, you can just kind of watch it as if it were a spectacle and not something where you're called to participate. Everything from that yeah. to kind of the suppression of the sacraments, so you can't go to confession, you can't go to Mass, to sure. uh, talking it down as if this is more important than than people's Salvation, people's spiritual life. We, I told you this about watching this in Italy with people dying without the sacraments, dying without funerals, dying without people near them, all these realities, and all sacrificed on the altar of this, this bug, this, this nasty flu. Um, but really, we've, we almost have deified. I mean, and, and, I, and I get so upset when I walk into the church, and instead of the holy water font, you have a Purell uh, container. It has become the new—it's so symbolic of of what we now believe about what purifies us and what makes us whole. And it's much more about your antiseptic hands than it is about God and His grace. And and, and Uh, I find that incredibly frustrating.
0: Yeah, I I found this striking uh, given your story yesterday about how the Pope said that Satan is a great diplomat working quietly and slowly. I mean, shouldn't he listen to that sometimes because it just does seem like that has been the problem for the Catholic Church itself in so many cases that these little these uh, problems that are seemingly small. Uh, just keep spiraling out of control and they'll last forever of course some of the child sex abuse scandals but also even the way they handled the pandemic i think it was not helpful to their cause it definitely kept me away
3: no absolutely and i and i think unfortunately this pope he's, he's a little schizophrenic i mean he says some very beautiful things and then he completely fails to apply them or to see their relevance in other areas of his leadership of the church and the way Christians are, are living and the way that the bishops and priests are behaving. So, I mean, it it is very frustrating. And you know, I mean, something that I've learned from you we at Breitbart, we try to be very, very objective. We never just demonize one way or the other. And I, and we know when the Pope does good things, I always try to lay it out there. And when he does stupid things, I lay it out there the same because it you know, it should be just, just kick the man all the time. But at the same time, there there are so many more occasions, it seems, to be frustrated and to be disappointed than there are to be, you know, admiring and grateful.
0: Uh, There is one thing, though, that was a silver lining. I did talk to I've talked to a number of people. I've asked this question of guests throughout the pandemic. It does seem like more people did return to scripture than uh, you, you would think necessarily. I think a lot of people this is more of an independent pursuit, not something that is guided i think by the church necessarily but it did seem like like i talked to david mammon about this uh, earlier in the week and it just seemed like a lot i know that i did this personally which you and i have discussed in the show i, I did find that i did gravitate when there was just so much negativity online like a little bit away from the keyboard and the screens and to the bible and i think that's a positive is that something that you experienced dr tom that you talk to people who are doing something similar
3: yes i i i have i have seen it i've i've actually come across both extremes. Those who actually dedicated much more time to their spiritual life during really made use of the lockdowns, made use of the whole pandemic to think about the big questions of life and death, and others who who just went through it and, and ignored that aspect and just use it in a way to separate themselves further from more spiritual or religious pursuits. and And it's I guess it's kind of like life itself. So many occasions, sometimes for people, they're they're a push in the right direction. And for other people, just don't take advantage of them that way. Um, And that's been my my experience has kind of been across the board. I've I've had both. And it's very beautiful to see. And I try to look especially at the positive ones because they help me to get inspired to do the same. Um, But it's not everybody.
0: Yeah. So so I always check in with you on Italy uh, and when it's um, I'm, I'm curious about how they're celebrating. Where is the state of your lockdowns right now? Are you guys coming back to normal? Is tourism coming back? Is it going to be a more joyous Easter than usual? Because you guys, I think we're still pretty severely shut down last year. Um, is are you heading in the right direction or is it still sort of lockdown mode?
3: No, we're definitely heading in the right direction. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I personally am very consoled. There are crowds in Rome right now. First of all, the weather's getting gorgeous. It's in the, it's, We're hitting 70s and sunny. Uh, all around, around the Vatican, the area is just throngs of people. And downtown, it, it's very alive. And uh, and despite the fact that there's still an indoor mask mandate for not only for public buildings run by the government, but things like grocery stores and any sort of private uh, enterprises also there's a, there's an indoor mass it's about to end and we're it's on its very very last hanging by a thread but uh, it's still there um, and that's frustrating but people are ignoring it people are just saying you know what we're going to we're going to go and celebrate and a lot of this is this is the first week that the pope's returned to all his um, holy week activities and allowing there's no limitations on on who can go in the numbers. Um, So there are a lot of very positive signs and you feel the vibrancy of the city again, which we really haven't felt in two years.
0: Yeah, I think that is a good thing because Mrs. Dr. Marlowe is pressuring me to get her out there. So that's 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 good news. So it's the uh, hey, for we're, those we're of you dying to that.
3: have you back, Alex. You know that. Yeah,
0: no, it's been too long. It's been way too long. It's a for those of you who are new to the show, um, Mrs. Dr. Marlowe's fluent Italian speaker. So it always makes vacationing in Italy, which is already already the best place to vacation. Just about other than maybe Hawaii. Uh, I think those are the two. The uh, the it's it's a, a extra enjoyable, especially when Dr. Tom can show you where the uh, restaurants are in Rome, which he does quite well. Um, <laughs> we should do if I, I need to get like a like some Patreon content, Dr. Tom, where I'm you know shooting the breeze with people, and I can get all your restaurant recommendations for the audience because it does a it does enhance quite a bit. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of headlines in the news. The uh, Pope has denounced four sins of journalists. Their disinformation, slander, defamation, and corporophilia. Is corporophilia is that the love of corporations? What is that?
3: <laughs> no. corporophilia is a word he's used before. What it's is a that? disgusting thing. It's, it's a psychological pathology, which is a oh love my gosh. of defecation or feces. And sometimes used in a, in a sexual <laughs> context. And he wow. a term as a very obviously about the strongest term you can imagine to talk about those who, who love crap, you know, basically those who, who that's what they, that's what they want in their news. Um, and, he, and he calls it this kind of perverted form of sensationalism where people are drawn to what is most disgusting. Um, and really, unfortunately, his, his critique would carry more weight if it wasn't always a defense of himself. It's always it seems to be in the context of people criticizing him and so then he talks about how bad journalists are. And, then you know, if it were just more in general with people with fake news or, or with, you know, mindlessness, which we often see, that'd be great. But when it's in the context of people that are criticizing him, it always, you know, loses, I think, a lot of its, its value.
0: Um, yeah, that is a, has he used that word before or is that, is that a new, a new thing for him?
3: No, that's probably the fourth or fifth time he's used it. It, It's, it's weird. It's one of those things he goes back to. And, you know, he's been criticized for that as well, because it's kind of a disgusting, image i mean you could choose something maybe just a little bit less graphic yeah. than do, that. do you
0: know what a, a lot of people are doing this now a lot of people are saying odd uh, nauseam now which means until you're nauseated and i just feel like n- no one actually means that they don't actually are when, when they use the, the expression um they're almost never talking about until they're nauseated and i just find it very off-putting but yet it's got a this cultural currency now everyone says odd nauseum" all the time and i just i don't get it it's like you're not really nauseated so why why do you say that <laughs> you can say odd infinitum like to infinity it's a it just people get these things in their head that are kind of off-putting and disgusting and they can't they can't help themselves so uh here you go the the pope uh, now we know what he's thinking about when he's um, thinking about journalists, um, why is he doing this? Who is he in mind? Is he talking about us, Doctor Tom?
3: No, he's not. Not in this particular case. Um, the last time he did, I'm going to go to two things. The last time he did it was against EWTN, which is a real shame. That's a very, very large Catholic television network in the United States. It tends to be fairly yeah. conservative, very orthodox. Um, and right. there has been some critique of the Pope, and so he did that. This time, it's about in particular Argentinian journalists who have been saying that the Pope has not been strong enough in naming, calling out Putin and calling out Russia by name in his discussion of the war. Um, And so there there have been quite a few of these stories about him in his native Argentina, people who have been calling on him to man up and to actually make a stand on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, Actually, the Pope has, I, I think, been he's gotten stronger and stronger on this question. I don't think he's been that bad. And I understand that a person in his position might not actually name names, but we talk about unjust aggressor and invasion. And he uses words like that. It's obvious who he's talking about. So it's not like, you know, he's, he's, it happens in one of the cases where he's less ambiguous. He he actually is clear what he's saying. Uh, But there have been these critiques um, and other critiques of him, obviously as well. And he just, uh, he has very thin skin and it's kind of unbecoming of a person in his position. He talks so much about humility to, to be so thin skinned, but, it is the reality. It is
0: uh, fascinating. So, uh, how's the Pope doing these days? Is he what, what? What is his priorities at the moment? Where is his focus?
3: Well, he you know he, he always does return, thank God, to spiritual topics in Holy Week, and he's he said some very very beautiful things to say at Mass on on Palm Sunday. It was very very lovely. Um, the same is is true with his celebration of the Chrism Mass on on Holy Thursday. Yesterday, he washed the feet of. Of prisoners last night, as he does every year on Holy Thursday to commemorate the washing of the feet with Jesus at the Last Supper. Um, He will inevitably return to some of his favorite tropes uh, come Sunday with his Irby at Orby message, that big blessing for the city and for the world, where he will talk about immigrants, he will talk about... um, refugees he will talk about climate he he does tend to go back to these topics that he loves so much but we have had a little bit of a break from that he has talked more about salvation he's talked more about the the actual spiritual realities that are at the core of what we're celebrating this week
0: i want to ask also about human rights group decrying genocide in nigeria of christians uh another one of those stories that for whatever reason doesn't get enough attention can you share this one with us
3: Absolutely. I mean, I I love to write these stories simply because I think, especially in the case of Nigeria, it has to be continually brought back to our attention. I mean, it's so easy to forget. I mean, I think the mainstream media doesn't even consider it news because it's so frequent. Every week there are kidnappings, there are murders, and they are most often uh, in, in Nigeria's middle belt of Fulani raiders. They would call them Fulani herders, and they are technically herders, but they are Islamic militants. And they target Christian villages, and these are ho- horrific acts. They go in with machetes and with guns. Uh, and they maim and kill people, and and it's it just it goes on and on and on. It truly is a genocide. There really is an attempt to Islamify or isla- Islamize uh, the country, which is, as you know, split almost fifty-fifty between Christians and Muslims. But in all the parts where there's a Muslim majority, Christians are are completely. Victimized um, and it is something I think that we need to remember just because it's not you know bombs suicide bombs going off in the Middle East This is a, a real reality of Christian persecution that happens day by day
0: uh, It is uh, something interesting to me because you've got Joe Biden, you're know, talking about genocide in Ukraine But he doesn't talk about genocide in China. He doesn't talk about genocide in Africa of Christians and it seems like the this was a trap that he walked into. I don't know if you caught this one, but him uh, I- again. I don't even know if I entirely disagree with him. The point is, is that it, the selective uh, paying attention to Putin and not to others uh, with whom he seems to be less preoccupied with personally uh, is pretty striking.
3: Well, yeah, I think in that case too part of it is still the residue of his anti-Trumpism because Donald Trump was so strong uh, against Xi and so strong against China and called it out so clearly that I think that Biden and, and, and Trump was seen as closer to Putin a little bit more, and some people actually still look at putin as a as a as a Russian version of Donald Trump, which I totally disagree with, but this is some people 's approach, some conservatives as well and I think Biden, since he's always got his finger in the air trying to determine which way the wind's blowing, he's always jumping around those questions politically and he doesn't do it as you say, uh, according to the reality on the ground. In fact, one of his first acts during his first few months in office, uh, his administration removed Nigeria from the list of countries of particular concern. The State Department did that. And, and it's completely nonsensical in the sense that Nigeria is, is one of the worst countries in the world for Christians. There are more Christians murdered in Nigeria every year because of their faith than any other country on the planet. I mean, this is definitely a country of, of particular concern and yet it wasn't politically uh, expedient for him, and so he decided to eliminate it from the list.
0: Yeah, that's a, another one that came up this week in your reporting. Is, uh, according to a report, there's been merciless killing of Christians in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which I think in terms of sort of sub-Saharan Africa uh, is not necessarily one of the worst places, and we're still seeing this. really horrifying. Dr. Tom, what's going on?
3: Well, a- again, it. If we covered all the anti-Christian acts in every – just taking Africa, if we just took the African countries from Somalia to the Democratic Republic of Congo to Niger, uh, to Nigeria, to Chad, uh, to Uganda, there are still – they happen all the time. And again, I'm sometimes shocked because I take my finger off the pulse for two or three days, and I go back, and I'm looking at stories, and it just it just keeps coming. Um, and again, we, I think it's very important what we do at Breitbart to keep this news – as news. I mean, it should be front and center, and you just won't find it anywhere in mainstream media because it's not considered important, maybe because there's a, there's a hidden racism. We consider these countries so backward they're going to do what they're going to do, or we don't like reporting on Christians as victims because we prefer to think of Christians as the intolerant oppressors. Uh, that's the narrative that, that the left likes to take in the United States. Whatever the reasons. They are simply not going down, you know, driving down on these questions, which are which are horrifying and real and now.
0: Yeah, precisely. And Dr. Tom Williams is with me. He's our Rome bureau chief, and talking about Easter, talking a little bit about what the Pope is up to and the Vatican. Um, it, where is the the Pope? Seem to be very keen to weigh in strongly on the russia ukraine situation was it surprising to you and he took a very strong anti-russian line which again resonates with me but i was um he's sometimes a little more diplomatic than that it seems like uh, assess his uh uh, his the way he discussed this topic
3: no i i've been very pleased to see it i've been very pleased very consoled to see it he started out much more diplomatic and he got he got harder and harder, as especially as the atrocities against civilians have taken place, and I, I think the clear nature of the invasion, as you know, really coming to occupy someone else's sovereign territory. I, I think that he, he can't not do that, and I think that's been great. On the other hand, he does have his his wishy-washiness in the sense that he speaks now just a lot about war, and he says there's no such thing as a just war, and which is you know contradicts centuries actually two millennia uh, of christian tradition and also right. in, the, in the in the case of ukraine their war is just i mean their their war of, of self-defense is just exactly. sure
0: exactly what's ukraine supposed to do then yeah
3: <laughs> right exactly so there there is his usual ambiguity at the same time he's also and it took, to his credit um has has not ceased talking about this every day or two and he uses very very strong language to say that this is just. It must be stopped. It must be repelled. And he has begrudgingly uh, recognized more through his people who work with him than from his own mouth, but the right to self-defense on the part of Ukraine, which is, I think, obvious to anyone with with common sense. But it's been important from a pope who is so anti-war to at least admit there are cases when people can defend themselves militarily.
0: Dr. Tom Williams, our Rome Bureau Chief. Happy Easter to you, Dr. Tom. Blessed Good Friday. And thanks for all the information.
3: Likewise. Thanks thanks a million Alex.
0: Listeners of the show know that, like so many of you, I'm an admirer of the Babylon Bee, which I think is one of the few entities in the world that makes me laugh on a consistent basis, and they happen to be Christian and conservative, which is all the better. Adam Yenzer is one of their satirists, and he's a stand-up comic. And we get into the state of comedy in this interview, and we also talk about the censorship of the Babylon Bee, which is still off Twitter as we're recording this, weeks after giving uh, Rachel Levine, formerly Richard Levine, their Man of the Year Award, which is uh, objectively hilarious, at least in my view. And uh, that was uh, grounds to get them thrown off of one of the major town squares of our time, Twitter. So we cover all that and more in the interview. Let's play it. Adam it's great to have you on and uh, Adam and I have made friends a little bit over the last few weeks and it's kind of coincidental that you're here because you guys are in the news a lot uh, with uh, Elon Musk and uh, you guys are friends with him and he might buy Twitter might not and I want to get your take on that but uh, you've a really super interesting background uh, would you would you care to share that with the audience a little bit
4: um yeah sure it's great to be here uh, yeah so I'm a comedian and kind of Got my start in the mainstream comedy and entertainment industry. Uh, I started out my career working for a Late Night with Conan O'Brien back when it was in New York uh, several years ago. Uh, worked there as a segment producer's assistant for several years and started doing stand-up in New York City. Then uh, moved out to L.A. when his show moved to The Tonight Show. Uh, worked there for a couple of years and then I became a writer for the Ellen DeGeneres Show, uh, and I wrote for Ellen for about ten years. Uh, I had a segment on that show called Kevin the Cashier, played by Adam. Uh, so I was doing a lot of mainstream comedy writing for these shows and started doing stand up comedy. And uh, throughout it all, I've been very open about being conservative and have kind of walked that line of, you know, uh, having a successful career in Hollywood while not hiding my values and my beliefs.
0: Now, I've got a take from afar, and I've I've grown up around Hollywood and been uh, peripherally connected to Hollywood but never in Hollywood per se Adam and uh, my impression is is that the way cancel culture actually works in Hollywood is not that you're blacklisted if you're a conservative but if you're talented you can still get work it's just not always going to be as pleasant for you because the culture is is very left but it's not like you can't work it seems like you've kind of lived that way. But tell me what it's like on the inside in terms of if you're the the lone Republican or one of a couple Republicans in a a writer's room filled with lefties.
4: Yeah, cancel culture is definitely real. And there are people who have in a very real way lost jobs, lost opportunities because of it. Um, I I do think there are a lot of people in Hollywood who are secretly conservative, who are nervous about uh, being open about their beliefs. Uh, in, in my experience, you know, it's tough to kind of have those conversations with people behind the scene. A lot of them, I mean, people on the left who are kind of in charge in Hollywood, uh, they're, you know, they won't cancel you outright. Um, but there are it's harder to get opportunities, I would say. And you kind of feel like you're you're walking a line. It can be nerve wracking to kind of stand up for what you believe, especially in the Trump years when the left kind of became all about messaging on every entertainment show on every comedy show um so you know i i i think there are opportunities for conservatives to work in hollywood it is a bigger risk and i think a lot of times where cancel culture does come into play is not necessarily taking people's careers away which does happen sometimes but it's sort of denying people who are successful in hollywood the opportunity to have that point of view presented on the air or to have the opportunity to, whether it's to do stand-up or to produce a show or to write a script that has conservative values or Republican-leaning political values, um, it, it always felt like I could be open about that, but those views would very rarely, if ever, make it to air or make it on stage.
0: Was that ever something that was discussed as maybe a weak point? Because it seems like now the comedian class the mainstream comedian class are mostly talking amongst themselves um, because I mean you watch the Stephen Colbert show Stephen Colbert I think is objectively a talented comedian but his show is not doesn't appear to be designed to be funny it appears to be designed to uh, you know just set narrative um, and there's no short of narrative setting out there in the media space so is, is when you were in these writers rooms was there a discussion that hey maybe if we balance this out we can enhance our audience or is it just not a concern
4: uh, I would suggest that a lot. <laughs> I don't know that they were uh, open to that. And I think, you know, what happened with Stephen Colbert, it's so sad as a comedian to see that because he is such a brilliantly hilarious comedian, and he was so funny and likable for so many years on the Colbert Report. Even though he was doing a, a caricature of a, of a Republican pundit, it was still brilliantly funny to everyone. And I was optimistic when he took over the late show, and it just became about kind of preaching political narratives and doing these heavy-handed jokes. Um, I think that Hollywood needs, uh, you know, sort of some, some perspectives from the other side. There were definitely discussions I had with various producers and networks over the years to that effect. And the attitude always seemed to be, you know, we see that there's a market for that. We see that there's an audience for that. We see that that's needed, but we don't want to be the ones who take a risk and go there. Uh, I well, think they themselves, even people on the left, are worried about cancel culture, and they're worried about yeah. people further to the left than them coming after them if they even give a platform to someone that they disagree with.
0: Yeah, and I think that's sort of the nature of where the blacklisting is is taking place. But you're trying to service that audience now with Babylon Bee, and you guys are doing a great job. I think that the uh, I, I think that the the greatest font of humor and entertainment, period, right now. Uh, to be honest with you, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of mainstream comedies are making people laugh you guys make people laugh on a regular basis so uh, congrats on that but do you feel like perhaps and you know i'm certainly a part of this too if that's the case do you feel like we're balkanizing ourselves at all because i know my audience is mostly going to be people who largely agree and i, I try to challenge them but do you guys find that or do you guys find that you're getting some mainstream crossover appeal of people who might not be in line with your worldview but you're you are reaching them
4: um, I think if there's any conservative platform out there right now that is appealing, at least to some independents and people on the other side, it's the Babylon Bee. We definitely have you know, a conservative and Christian point of view in a lot of our articles and a lot of our sketches and podcasts. But we try to have a sense of humor about the right as well. We have a self-deprecating sense of humor about ourselves. And we do run some articles and sketches that are just about you know, um, you know, common relatable experiences that everyone can have. So we try to work that. in also, uh, you know, we always want things to be genuinely funny. So we're trying to do that to some degree. But I think there definitely is this polarization that's happening. And, you know, I don't really like that. I don't like that everyone on the left can watch Colbert and then everyone on the right can watch, you know, Fox News or, or some other uh, right wing outlet. And it's kind of stifling conversations. And I don't find it as fun in comedy because, Part of the fun is challenging people a little bit. Part of the fun is breaking the rules and being edgy. And that's what I love about comedy clubs is it's one of the last bastions where you can go out there and talk to all, you know, this cross section of America. You don't know if you're getting more liberals or more conservatives or what part of the country you're in. And, you know, whatever jokes you tell, you can get a laugh from them regardless of your perspective, as long as it's funny enough.
0: Yeah, and I I think this we're very sensitive to this now all of a sudden, and I think this is a real uh, failing on our part as a nation that literally has uh, free speech codified in our Bill of Rights, that we are now looking to be offended at such an amazing level because we used to be able to roast all sides, and obviously the entertainment world leans left and has for a very long time. Uh, but it seems like now even comedians have to mind their P's and Q's to, to go mainstream. I mean, just watching parts of the Oscars and not the part where, you know, Will Smith literally slapped a comedian for a joke. That was kind of a stupid joke, but he slapped them for it, which is insane. I want your take on that. But it's the other jokes that led up to it. They were woke. They were stupid. And then there was. But a couple of them that weren't woke and stupid did land OK.
1: Uh, yeah. And
0: yep. So so they, just give me your 360 thoughts on where are we with the, the state of comedy right now?
4: Um, you know, it, it's hard right now because I think it's that polarization that we were just talking about that I think makes it very hard uh, to kind of breach the uh, to co- sort of cross that middle ground of where you can talk to people on the other side. I'm optimistic about the state of comedy right now. I do think there's people that are pushing back against cancel culture on both sides. Uh, I think the stand that Dave Chappelle and Netflix took with his uh, Netflix special when the sort of cancel culture mobs and the transgender activists came after him, it, by standing up for him, by not uh, removing the special, it kind of showed that you can stand up to these people and keep this stuff on your platform and be both artistically successful in that it's funny and be financially successful in that it's making money for the platform. So that those kind of things are giving me optimism right now. Um, I I do think there's still a long way to go in terms of balancing out the points of view in Hollywood and in mainstream entertainment shows, late night shows, comedy shows. Uh, Yeah, at the Oscars, it's almost just, you know, de facto now when you turn on an awards show or when you turn on a late night show, you know you're going to get a perspective from the left. And some of the jokes at the Oscars were funny, but anytime they lean into politics, it's always from the left and it's always kind of making the right a punching bag. If they ever do go after the left, it's usually for them not being to the left enough, for not being woke enough.
0: Yes, yes.
4: So I think that needs to change. Uh, And yeah, the the whole slapping situation at the Oscars. I didn't know anybody else watched any other part of the Oscars other than that. <laughs> that was the only thing that anybody tuned into. I,
0: I, it was, it was just a rating stunt. That's all it was. It wasn't. It wasn't yeah. cool. Adam <laughs> Yenzer is with me, by the way. He is from the Babylon B and a veteran comedy writer also in, in Hollywood. Um, yeah. Give me your take on the slap.
4: You know, I, I was shocked by the slap. I was actually not watching the Oscars. I was on a flight back from uh, some up shows I was doing in Ohio and when I landed, my phone was buzzing with all these questions, but none of them referenced what happened. It just said, like, what was that? What did we just see? Holy cow. And then I went online, and I, I it was the front page of everything. And I watched it. I tend to think, you know, Will Smith should have been thrown out immediately. I think he should sure. have probably been charged. Beyond that, I'm sort of skeptical of a lot of the think pieces all around that have been written about the slap. (laughs) I I think there's a lot of people that are trying to put it in context of some larger cultural meaning. I I don't think that's the sort of violence that comics have to deal with on a regular basis. I don't think. Wait a minute, Adam. Adam,
0: you you don't think he set back the entire black community, like uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said?
4: Uh, I I don't necessarily. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I, didn't even hear Did Kareem Abdul-Jabbar say that.
0: Yeah, that was literally
4: in, in his thing. Yeah. I, well, the yeah, you know, maybe it did. Maybe that was a, a turning point in, in black history was that <laughs> one moment on the Oscars. No, but see, I think it, it's sort of ridiculous when people try to make it about this grand statement on race or this grand statement on masculinity, or I've heard, you know, people talking about, well, is it, is it show how. You know, open marriages, which Jaden Will are rumored to have, are, are volatile and all this. To me, it was just like one guy who has issues and lost his temper. Yeah. And it was amazing to me, mostly that he was able to walk up on stage. It took so many seconds where he could have decided not to do that. It wasn't like Chris yeah. Rock was right in front of him. And it was just crazy watching him walk all the way up there, decide to do that, and then go and sit back down again. is just incredible. It's and I true. think Chris Rock and handled and it cursing. extremely well. So, you know, if, if Will Smith set the black community back at all, I think Chris Rock made up for all of it because he handled it as awesomely, I think, as any comedian could handle that.
0: Th- that is true. And especially because I mean, it was just not a funny joke. And then he just nailed it afterwards. And then uh, Oh, I know. On.
4: That joke. No one would have ever thought about that joke again had Will Smith yeah. not slapped him. It was just yeah. such, a, such a kind of throwaway line. Um, it, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And,
0: and 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 then his line the next day that he's glad he didn't make the joke about Alec Baldwin's wife. like I mean, it's just so good. And it's just it was such a good yeah. comeback from but it's the one thing that's interesting to me, Adam, and we've spoken about this uh, offline a little bit. It just seems like there's not a lot of comedians that are pushing buttons now. Uh, and I think that a lot of people feel like they can't. Um, but then when they do, like a Dave Chappelle, they're they're embraced, and uh, yeah, sure, there's some cancellation from the left, but that just it means you're going to sell more tickets. It seems like that's the best way to sell tickets. Um, but you know, you've heard you, Todd Phillips, who's the director, who. Did the Hangover movie is and some other uh, comedies, but now he's doing more edgy stuff like he did the Joker because he says you can't be subversive in, yeah. in uh, if you want to make people laugh. Right now, it's such a shame. Uh, but again, you guys are really feeling that void, so you must feel like you're a kid in the candy shop of the Babylon Bee now because they're just seeding the whole playing field.
4: Yeah, it, it's great to be at a place you know that wants to take risks, that wants to you know push the envelope a little bit in a smart way. Um, to kind of present a perspective that isn't very common in the in the mainstream comedy industry. Um, you know, Seth, our CEO, and Kyle, our editor-in-chief, they're, they're great to work for. I think they have a good vision for the B. Um, and it's fun, you know, you hear, you know, through the grapevine that there are people, including celebrities, including producers, that maybe aren't very open about their political beliefs, but you hear through these, like, Channels And through the grapevine, they're like, oh, this person really liked your stuff. This person, you know, really supports what you're doing. And, you know, I think we need more comedy like that, and more platforms like that to, um, you know, kind of show that, the, that all sides can be funny and that there's a, a market and an audience for all of this.
0: So here's the, the flip side to that, though, is that now you guys are tasked with satirizing people who seem to embarrass themselves so much every day. It is <laughs> uh, th- today I opened the show uh, talking about how it, it appears as though Joe Biden went to shake hands with the air.
4: Uh, oh, my God. It's turn- such a cringy video.
0: It's unbelievable. It just if you guys came up with that stuff, that you, you would be high fiving with how brilliant it is. But this yep. is really happening. It's happening all the time.
4: Yeah. I think we did a sketch on the Babylon Bee YouTube channel recently. It was called the satire writers having a hard time keeping up with reality. And it's true. It's like you try to exaggerate and kind of try to use hyperbole and humor to sort of draw attention to what's going on and comment on what's going on. And it just seems like every day in the news, there's something that happens that is so crazy. You you couldn't come up with it as a comedy writer. You would think it was a joke if it wasn't actually happening. You know, oh, like exactly. like a few months ago, you know that story now they, they sort of tried to debunk it a little bit, but there's the story about Joe Biden uh sending out crack pipes to crack addicts to help with racial <laughs> equity. It's <laughs> right. you know, you couldn't write that as a satire writer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, and like like but paying you know, illegal aliens more than we pay the families of our war dad. I mean, it just is stuff just yeah. like, wow. It's just like we're doing that like in our country. Yep. It's a we have yeah. a mass on the mass on the two year olds, but we're opening the border to people infected with coronavirus. It's like
4: yeah, uh, Yeah And then, you know, another angle that that makes that difficult for us as satire writers is, you know, we're not trying to be fake news. We're not trying to trick people. We are very openly a satire site. We very openly do comedy at the Babylon Bee. But there are people that fall for the news stories fairly regularly because some of them, even though they're ridiculous satire stories, they sound kind of believable. And then, you know, we often get fact-checked by Snopes, and some of those are... Some of those are are believable stories and some of them are just ridiculous where Snopes will fact check us and it's like, yeah, this isn't real. How could anyone have possibly fallen for this and thought it was real in the first place?
0: Adam Yenzer is with me from the Babylon Bee. He's also a stand-up comedian. And I want to ask you about you guys are friends with Elon Musk and it seems like and he's been on your podcast and he's uh, seems to have a eye for you guys. And you guys are banned from Twitter, still banned. Because you yep, called yeah. a, a joke about Rachel Levine a man, uh, being a man. Um, so so you're off. And uh, the, some other good people are joining you in the ranks. Charlie Kirk, Tucker Carlson, some others. Um, but the, Musk is trying to, I guess, buy Twitter. I think he probably underbid yesterday. And then maybe he's pulling out. Do you have any insight into this? Do you think Musk is serious or do you think he's just trolling?
4: Um, I, I don't have a whole lot of insight into it. I like that you consider him a friend beca- of, of ours. He's definitely a supporter of the I wish I was friends with him personally. He seems like he'd be a fun guy to know. Uh, I, I think he's serious about trying to affect change in the social media world. Um, I, I don't think he's just trolling. I think trolling may be one of the tactics along the way. But I think what he's doing um, is – It's needed, but it's sad that it's gotten to this point. It's sad that these platforms that are supposed to exist for this sort of free exchange of ideas and these platforms that will ostensibly claim that they support free speech are doing the exact opposite of that and are censoring points of view and are suspending people pretty much arbitrarily where, you know, if if you make a joke like we did about naming Rachel Levine the man of the year, you get suspended and then there are horrible dictators and horrible political movements around the world where there's people that are still on Twitter that are still able to put their views out there. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that the reason it's important to defend free speech in the first place is to defend speech that you don't necessarily de- agree with. And um, right. I, I think it's a good stand Elon Musk is taking. I don't know exactly what his end game is, but I think it's more than trolling. I think he really is trying to affect change.
0: What about the uh, 420 uh, uh, the quote in the, <laughs> for his price for 5420? So he's a little tall. That, that just, may be just, just I, I do like when he just works in
4: the little jokes like that. He's, he's he's smart with that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, he does uh always make sure he's entertaining himself, if no one else. I think he's entertaining yeah. everyone. I think that's a minimum. I think that I will give him that. I'm I'm more of a Musk skeptic than I think the average probably Babylon B um uh, employee, but it's the but I do think he's he is entertaining. Um, do you have yeah, any, He gave it, us
4: our biggest podcast interview, so we always we always have to defend him. We we get yeah, skeptics important. of Musk on every now and then we always have to be yeah. like, No, no, Elon's right about everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it. It is funny, and and it's also I like the the it lightly self-deprecating too, which is great. Uh, but exactly, do you have any yeah. I, I, any insight behind the curtain? Because you guys are just getting so hosed because your best advertisement is your Twitter feed, which is which is sensational um, with all the headlines, and you're just cut off because of a hilarious joke, like a truly hilarious joke, and uh, poking fun at someone you're not allowed to poke fun at. And you have a choice between caving to the woke mob or not having a huge weapon from your arsenal Uh, is uh, what have the discussions been like behind the scenes?
4: Um, I'm not, I'm not party to a lot of those discussions. They're kind of going on between Seth, our CEO and Kyle, our editor in chief. I support the track that they've taken with it. It's very difficult because Twitter is such a big way that we reached our audience and that a lot of people reach their audience now. And it's, it's unfair that they can take that away from you so easily. Now in the brief aftermath of that tweet, um, and you know, this is often effective cancel culture. It drew a lot more attention to that tweet than it may have gotten otherwise. So, you know, we're getting followers and subscribers on our, on our website. We're getting supporters on YouTube. Um, We're trying to get our stuff out there through other social media platforms where we haven't been banned, but there is some evidence, you know, that our stuff gets suppressed a little bit. Um, But, what what sucks about the way Twitter is handling this is the ultimatum they basically give is that Babylon B has to take down that tweet. Yeah. They're not just, just going to delete it. So they want you to kind of bend the knee. They want you to say, oh, we're going to give in to this demand. We're going to take it down ourselves. We're going to apologize. And I think the Babylon B took the right uh, position and said, no, we're not going to do that. Now, yeah, the- it does affect business. It does affect uh, you know our followers and how we get our material out there. Um, but I think it's important to kind of take that stand, and it's important for if people want to keep supporting the Babylon Bee, you know, keep sharing our stuff, keep telling people about it, keep posting our videos, uh, because you know the subscribers can play a big role in making sure that we still do yeah, get our material. Yeah, and,
0: and, 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 and Adam, let, let, let me plug. So everyone should just go to anything the Babylon Bee is doing, and especially their their YouTube. Subscribe. Adam really appreciate it. Next time we'll talk about the news, but I gotta run.
1: That American bar.
0: all for today. Thanks to producers Haley and Greg Ebben. I hope all of you have a very happy Easter and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.